Last week we were in Romans chapter 9 through 11, finishing up a block of material that's 11 chapters long, about two-thirds of Romans, that has to do with what, what God wants us to think. Holy Spirit is riding through Paul and says, listen, I want to talk to your brain for a few moments. Well, he does that all the way through chapter 11, having to do with what's called the Jewish-Gentile controversy. One of the greatest challenges of the early church was, how do you bring people from two different, radically different cultures, Jews, Gentiles, how do you bring them together to worship? How do you bring them together in fellowship? How do you bring them together with a common goal and purpose? And so Paul's been battling that now literally all over the Roman Empire, from Asia Minor to northern Syria, now all the way over to Rome. And so Paul is dealing with this controversy that's been going on. And he ends chapter 11 with an illustration of an olive tree. Uh, Paul loved to do that. I mean, he would grab these images and then give spiritual meanings to them. And if you ever go to Israel, Rodney will tell you there's olive trees everywhere. You got a house, you got an olive tree planted in the yard somewhere. And so the olive tree, Paul says, the roots, the roots are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. The, 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 the trunk is, is Israel, ancient Israel, as God is working through these people to accomplish his purposes, including the Davidic king and the promise of the one who would ultimately reign on his throne forever. The branches, they represent the tribes with all the various Israelites. But Paul says because Israel has failed in believing in the Messiah, God is breaking branches off. But as he breaks unbelieving branches off, he's grafting on a wild olive branch, which represents us Gentiles. And so you've got this image of this olive tree combining both the tame tree, you know, the cultivated tree, and wild olive branches all coming together to form one tree. Keep that in mind, because Paul's going to play off a different image, but the same message here in just a moment. So we come to Romans 12 passage that we all read together a few moments ago. Begins with the interesting word, therefore. As we have said, if you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? And because it's a major point that Paul's going to make. Therefore, I urge. Back when I was studying Greek 100 years ago, my, my Greek professor was a man by the name of Dr. Carol Osborne. And Dr. Osborne would talk about the fact that in Paul especially, when you see this word parakaleo, which is translated I urge, he says you need to understand that for Paul that's a red flag. Paul is saying I'm fixing to say something important. You need to pay attention. It's found here in Romans 12. You turn over to Ephesians 4. You turn over to Colossians chapter 3. You turn over to Philippians chapter 4. You see it all through Paul's epistles. And it's Paul's way of saying... Here's what I'm driving at. I hope you'll pay attention. And so notice the different translations. I urge, NIV, I beseech, I beg, I appeal, I plead, I exhort. And, and, and I like especially I urge and I beg, putting those two together. Because here Paul is emotionally speaking to the heart saying, now it's time to put what I've taught you in your head to action in your hearts. And then notice what he says. In view of God's mercy. For 11 chapters, Paul's been saying, you Jews and you Gentiles, you stand before God on the same foundation. 
And that foundation is Jesus Christ. And you got there because of God's mercy. And you stand there because of your faith. And because of that, you're all equal to one another. You Jews, you can't look down at the Gentiles because you too are saved by faith through Jesus Christ. You Gentiles, you can't exclude the Jews because they too stand on that foundation by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says as a result of that, it's time for you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. It's a word that was very important in the ancient world. It's changed its meaning somewhat, but at least some of the intensity of its original meaning is still there. You know, we're right in the middle of, of you know, the championship season of, of football, whether it's high school or college. I mean, everybody's getting ready for championships. You know, the big question, who's going to win the Southeast Conference? Who's going to play for the NCAA title game coming up here, you know, in a few weeks? And, of course, then ultimately in NFL football, who's going to play for the Super Bowl? And, of course, coaches are right now saying to their players, listen, if we're going to win, it's going to be because you've made a sacrifice. You're going to have to get up earlier. You're going to have to stay up later. You're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to get back to fundamentals. You've got to make the sacrifices necessary to win. Last week, we celebrated veterans. And boy, if there's anyone who understands sacrifice, it's those who have served in the military of the United States. Not just sacrificing their own lives, but the sacrifice that their families have to make for them to go and serve our country. Sacrifice is an incredibly intense word. And of course, in the first century, it had to do with people going to the temple, taking a bull or a goat or a sheep, if you were poor, maybe doves or pigeons, and offering something to God, whether it was in response to sin you've committed or just to say to God, thank you. You see, we celebrate Thanksgiving this week. They had thanks offerings that they would make. And of course, this always was meant to say, I'm offering something that cost me, God, to show you how much I love you. David once said, shall I offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing? And the answer is, of course, no. You don't. So here's Paul. And he's saying, guys, ladies, can I get serious for a moment? It's time we go in. Whole hog. I was telling someone this week is full of memories for me. Because when I was a teenager growing up, the Friday after Thanksgiving was hog killing day. I mean, that's when all my family would come together and we'd all get together and, you know, pull up the hogs that had been fed all year long. And as a family, we would, we would you know, kill hogs and, you know, cure the meat and eat the tenderloin. And my mom and dad would always, on this coming Saturday morning, eat brains and eggs. Yum, yum. I never could eat them. I just couldn't do it. I'm sure they tasted good. Mom and dad said they tasted good. I just couldn't do it. But, but I mean, this, this whole thing of going in whole hog, you know, that's what Paul's calling us to do. And if you've killed hogs, you know what I'm talking about with that. And so he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't let this world press you down into its mold. But one of the things you need to do in looking at what's coming up is you need to leave it in its context. One of the problems with us reading, for instance, anything out of Romans 12 or Romans 13 is that we tend to pull it out of context. Now, what's amazing is, is that these texts allow you to do that. You can pull what comes after this out of context. You can preach a great sermon. You can teach a great Bible lesson. 
But what happens when you pull it out of context is that you really lose kind of the sense of what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us through Paul. And so when he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, he's saying to the Jews, it's time that you quit being so Jewish that you can't accept your Gentile brethren. And you Gentiles, you've got to get out of that world of paganism that you grew up in, and you've got to meet these Jews in the middle, and you've got to become what God has called you to be, this olive tree growing up to give him glory. And you do it by changing the way you think. Renewing your mind. Christianity is all about reprogramming. You know, we're constantly, you know, on our computers putting in new systems in order to make our computers do what we want them to do. God knew that 2,000 years ago. I mean, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God, and when we read the Word of God and meditate on the Word of God, He begins the process of reprogramming the way we think so that we begin to think more like God and less like the world. And in doing that, you learn to know and appreciate and to do what God's will is. Now, here's what's important. What follows, if you're not careful, you'll look at it and you'll think it's just these random teachings that Paul just kind of throws out. No, they're not. These are not random things at all. You've got to understand something about Paul. Paul is looking through a particular lens as he's coming out of chapter 11. And everything that he writes in 11, 12, 13, 14, first part of 15, all of it is tying into the same basic theme. And that theme is unity. That's the lens he's looking through. As Paul is rewinding this letter up, he's saying, listen, here's what you've got to do if you're going to come together as the people of God. And so he begins in Romans 12, 3 through 8, and he's going to focus in particular on the fact that you Gentiles and you Jews are a part of one body, and all of you contribute gifts to that one body. Look at what he says. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Two messages that are going to be woven together all the way through this text. Number one is humility. And basically what he's saying is, you Jews, you got to throw the arrogance out the window. It won't work. You Gentiles, the conceit you have for the Jews has got to go. It won't work. And so he begins by saying, you've got to think of yourselves in a sober way, in accordance with the faith that God's given to you. And then he begins with his first point. Notice verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same functions, so in Christ we who are many form one body. One. There's not a Jewish body or a Gentile body. There's not an Anglo body or an African-American body. There's not a Hispanic body or an Asian body. You see, one of the biggest mistakes we make as Americans today is that we have this thought that, you know what, people who are similar to one another want to worship with other people who are similar to one another. And so this group should worship together, and that group over there should worship together, and that's what Americans think. Let me tell you what God thinks. God thinks the more variety in the body of Christ, the better the body is. 
This concept I was raised in, in North Mississippi, that the Anglo brethren should worship over here and the African American brethren should worship over here is absolutely so against the will of God, it's pathetic. It is so sinful. And of course, it's it's remnant still exists today. I mean, isn't it tragic that the most segregated hour of the week for years and years and years have been in our churches of all places? Where it should have been the most integrated group of people in the world. God will hold us accountable, brothers and sisters. I'm telling you. I mean, I've oftentimes said the problem was not overt racism as I was a kid growing up. It was that underneath the surface racism that says we're not going to rock the boat to be more like what God has called us to be. And God have mercy on our souls for being that way. When it takes the federal government of the United States to integrate our Christian colleges, you know something's wrong. And yet that's what happened. You see, Paul's saying to Gentiles who had gotten used to being just Gentiles, God doesn't have just a Gentile church. You Jews, God doesn't have just a Jewish church. God's church is made up of just many, many people. And each church, by the way, has unique, each, each individual has a unique gift in that church. So right beside a Jewish finger is a Gentile finger. And right beside a white rib is a black rib. And right beside a big toe that may be Asian is a little toe that's Hispanic. God draws all of us together in order to be the people he's called us to be. So he goes on in the next section, he says, now how do we get there? How do we create this body that is one body made up of a multitude of cultures, of backgrounds, of colors? I mean, how do we do that? And again, all has to do with love and humility. Watch what he does as he begins to give some imperatives and commands. And all of these, again... Don't pull them out as if these are just random commands that Paul throws out. They're not random at all. Paul has a unique purpose in saying these things. Watch what he says. Love, it's got to be sincere. Right off the bat. It's easy to save someone who's different from you. I love you. Do you really mean it? Does it go down deep in your heart? Love's got to be sincere. This thing, a superficial love, look at what he says. You need to hate that because that's evil. It's got to be something that's deeper than that. So you've got to cling to what is good. You've got to be devoted to one another in love. I mean, Jesus will later on say, or or earlier than this, earlier than this said, listen, a new commandment I give you to love one another as I've loved you. This is what's going to draw the world to you. So be devoted to one another in love. And then look again, going right back to that theme of humility. And you honor one another above yourselves. Boy, what a command. And I begin to think, you know what? Maybe I need to understand where another person is coming from. Maybe I need to walk in their shoes. You know, maybe it's time for the younger people to say, you know what, I may not like the old rugged cross, but my grandmother does, so I'm going to learn to love it because of her. Maybe it's time for some of our grandparents who look at our our grandkids and say, man, I just don't understand these songs they like singing at church. I mean, they just don't make any sense to me. Maybe it's time that you learn those songs and help understand them through their eyes. Isn't it interesting that we all understand how this works in secular world? 
I remember my mother talking about when she was uh, in her 20s. My grandfather, her father, hated the music she enjoyed. Hated it. This guy out of Tupelo, Mississippi named Elvis Presley was embarrassing. Who in the world would listen to something that vulgar? My mother absolutely loved Elvis. I mean, she thought he was the most handsome, best singing guy she had ever seen. And then, of course, when I came along, became a teenager, I remember mother getting in, a, in the car with me and my radio is on, and I'm listening to my music, and mother's saying, why do you want to listen to trash like that? And I'm thinking, here we go again. Have you ever noticed that every generation looks at the next generation and what they're enjoying and goes, what in the world are they listening to? American Music Awards come on. They advertise it on TV. Appearing this week is this person, this person, this person, this I look at June and I say, I don't know any of them. And June says, that's because you don't listen to modern radio. And I don't. I was raised in the 70s. You know, I mean, my station is the oldies. We're all that way. We can't be that way in the church. We've got to honor one another. He then in verse 11 says, listen, never be lacking in zeal. You keep your spiritual fervor. You keep, you, you keep your, both of you, whoever you are, you keep yourself focused on what God's called you to do, serving the Lord. And therefore, you'll be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And boy, look at verse 13. And share. You Jews better not look at those Gentiles in need and go, they can help themselves, I'm not helping them. Or you Gentiles, don't look at the Jewish brethren who may be suffering back in Jerusalem and say, I'm not, I'm not helping them. What do I have to do with them? You came out of them. They were the mother church. And practice hospitality. We read that and it just goes right over our heads. Of course we practice hospitality. Go back to Acts 10 when Paul goes up to Cornelius' house and he knocks on the door. And Cornelius comes to the door. And I want you to look at what he says up here, verse 28. You're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit. Peter's standing at a door. He's never crossed over. Never. He's never been in a Gentile's house. And here Jesus has given him three visions. The Holy Spirit has sent him. angel has spoken to him. All of which is to say it's time to cross over that door. And he does. And that's why we Gentiles are a part of the church today. I was in college. I was in college before I'd ever stepped over the doorway of an African-American's family. It's not something we did growing up. And I mean, each generation has its own barriers. And here's Paul saying it's time to set those aside. We as the people of God cannot be like the world. We can't let the world press us down into its mold. He goes on, and, and let me come back just for a moment. Uh, well, let me, let me go on. He goes on in, in chapter 12, and he acknowledges that this is going to be difficult for Christians. He, he just, Paul says, listen, I know it's going to be hard. And so what do you do when you're in a church and there are Gentiles who just don't want to accept the Jews? Or there's Jews that don't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. What do you do? Watch what Paul says. He says, here's the commands you follow in difficulties. First of all, when someone starts speaking bad towards you, you don't curse them. You bless them. 
I mean, when someone tends to come upon us strong and just kind of shuns us, we want to say, oh, really? That's the way you're going to treat me? Paul says, that's not the way you respond. You bless. You don't curse. In fact, you rejoice with them when they rejoice. How can I rejoice with a Jew who won't even treat me like a human being? You do it anyway. You grieve with them when they grieve. You live in harmony with them. And then look at what he comes back at again. He's hammering this all the way through these passages. You, you don't get proud. You don't feel like, you know what? I can't associate with people who are not like me. You better not be conceited. He says, you don't repay anyone in the church, outside the church, evil for evil. You be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Jew or Gentile, black or white, Hispanic or Asian, rich or poor, you just fill in the blanks. And then Paul lays it out as far as it depends on you. I can't control the other person. Wished I could. I can't even control June, for heaven's sakes. All right? And so June has to practice this last one big time. As far as it depends on her, she has to try to live at peace with me. And boy, it depends a lot sometimes on her. But y'all, that's the way we've got to treat one another. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to do as best I can to live at peace with everybody. And then, what about the really, really, really hard ones? Last thing in the world is you take revenge on them. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Quoting from Deuteronomy 32.5, Those who act in ways that are so unbecoming of a follower of Jesus Christ, God will hold them accountable. Trust God. On the contrary, if you've got someone who's hungry, you feed them. If they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their heads. Former minister here, David Swan, or David and I went to Freed Hardman together many, many, many moons ago. But David's always had one of the oddest ways of trying to make friends with people who don't want to be friends with him. He bakes them a pie. He does. I mean, he's been doing that. He did that long before he came to Hendersonville. I mean, he says, if there's somebody mad at you, bake them a pie. Take it and said, listen, I was thinking about you, and I baked you a pie. And to my knowledge, he's never had anyone throw that pie in his face. And he says, how long can you be mad at someone who bakes you a pie? Unless the pie's like June's one time that she made a chest pie and forgot to put sugar in it. Don't do that. But other than that, it'll work. You feed them. In so doing, Proverbs says, you make them embarrassed and ashamed of what they've done. And then Paul goes in Romans 13 a strange direction. Strange direction. He, he talks of all things about civil authorities. And at first glance, you just stop and you go, what in the world is he doing now? I remember years ago, I'm studying through Romans. I've printed it up on a huge sheet of paper. I've got it up on the wall. I'm going through and I'm basically trying to figure out how does each paragraph relate to the previous, the next paragraph? How do they relate to it as a whole? And I'm standing there looking at it, and chapter 13 makes no sense. I can figure out all the rest, but why in the world, in the midst of these instructions, does he stop to talk about the emperor? And those in, in civil authority. And then it dawned on me. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And you see, the reason he starts talking about this is because what had happened about 15 years earlier. Emperor Claudius, because there were riots going on in Rome. Suetonius says, this is a direct quote from Suetonius, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus. It's not Christus, it's Christos. It's Christ. They're arguing about, is Jesus the Messiah or not? And, and there's riots going on. Synagogues, they're throwing people out. People getting angry. And Claudius finally said, enough is enough. All of you Jews, out of here. Which had created that pure Gentile church. Now Nero's on the throne. Jews are back. Guess where the fights are going on now? In church. They're not in the synagogues, they're in the Christian churches. And so what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, don't you dare bring the authorities on us again. Don't you even think about it. I heard of a church here a while back that had a conflict going on. And one of the members didn't like where one of the other members was trying to take the church. And so they showed up at church one Sunday and the police was there because one of the members wanted to file charges against another member. Now, y'all, we have police in the back and I appreciate it. They come here to help us with protection. But the Sunday morning, they have to come in here to break up a fight. We ought to be embarrassed, right? That's not their purpose here. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, listen, you need to understand something about the civil authorities. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God and what he has instituted, and so you'll bring judgment on yourselves. Don't you dare disrespect who's ruling over you. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's ruling over you is perfect. Do you know who's emperor at this time? Nero. One of the worst emperors there ever was. And yet, with Nero on the throne, Paul said, pray for him. With Nero on the throne, Peter said, pray, pray for him. Both of them died at his hands, but they still said, you pray for him and you honor him no matter what. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants. The word there in the Greek is diakonos. These are God's diakonoi. These are God's servants. And so he says, they govern full time. So if you owe taxes, you pay taxes. Revenue, you pay revenue. If respect, you pay respect. If honor, you pay honor. And brothers and sisters, let me deviate just for a second. Some of you need to repent. I need to be right there among you sometime. Because we have allowed Americanism and politics to so infiltrate the hearts of so many Christians that instead of praying for the President of the United States, many of us are cursing him. And brethren, that's a sin. Let me just say it point blank. I don't care if there's a Democrat in office. I don't care if there's a Republican in office. We need to be people who honor those who are in political office. Not that they make the right decisions. They oftentimes don't. We, sh we should pray that they make the right decisions. But whether they do or not, it's up to God to judge. Our responsibility is to pray, honor, pay our taxes, give respect. And when I look around and I see people who claim to be evangelical Christians saying some of the things they're saying, whether it's on social media or whether it's at a ball game or a car race, God forgive us for such incredible irreverence to our God. 
Rather, we've got to stop this. I've seen, I've had to go to elders in the church and plead with them, get off social media. Because what you're posting is not only anti-Christian, it's anti-God. Unbecoming of someone who claims to follow Jesus Christ. Now, I appreciate those who serve in government. Because they are God's servants. And when a Christian serves in government, double God's servants. Because I know they're trying to do what's right, and I appreciate it so much. And of all the people that need to be people who do our country right, it's those of us who are Christians. So let's take what Paul says here seriously. After saying that, he moves right back to love. And this is how he finishes. He says, listen, let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another. And here he, he directs his attention straight at the Jewish brethren. Jewish brethren who are so concerned that the Gentiles are not going to keep the law. These Ten Commandments, they've got to keep the Ten Commandments. And Paul says, can I tell you how they keep the Ten Commandments? He says, whoever loves others have fulfilled the law. He, he starts, notice, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. He says, guess what? All of these are summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you get that one, you get all the rest. Which is interesting that Jesus said the exact same thing the last week of his life. All the law and the prophets hang on loving God and loving our neighbor. And so Paul pleads with us. Y'all, the only debt that's an acceptable debt is the debt to love one another the way Christ has loved us. That's what's going to create a people that the world looks at and go, wow, something different about those folks. So Paul's pleading with them. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Simply doesn't do it. And therefore it's the fulfillment of the law. And so Paul ends this whole section with a plea. That plea is, is one that we need to hear. I need to hear it. He says, time to wake up, folks. Watch what he says. This wake-up call and do this. Understand the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Now, if I put you to sleep this morning, just stay asleep. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about people spiritually. Notice what he says, because our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. The night is already almost over. The daylight is here, so it's time for us to move. And, of course, he's using spiritual language here. Look at what he says. Let us behave decently. That's all he's calling us to. There was a time that our nation behaved decently. It doesn't anymore. The language I, use, I hear used everywhere. Television advertisement, many politicians. What's happened to common decency? He says it's time that we get away from carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy. It's time to be clothed with our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we walk out of here today, we need to walk out as a people when people out in the world look at us they see something different and they may walk up to us and say are you a Christian and let me tell you that when someone asks you that question it's the greatest 
honor they could ever bestow upon you to think that you might be a follower of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if people are not noticing, that may be a clue that it's time to wake up. Paul is pleading with the church and saying to them, if we're going to be the people God has called us to be, it's going to take some sacrifice on the part of all of us. We're going to have to learn to love deeply with a devotion that is like that that Jesus Christ had for us. And we're going to have to get off our high horse, as my mother used to call it, and be people who are humble, who, who respect others above ourselves. We not only treat one another in here respectfully, but we go out into the world and we behave as people who are clothed with Christ every time somebody sees us in the world. I've preached to myself this morning. I've been guilty of a lot of this stuff. I suspect some of you have as well. It's time we ask God to forgive us. It's time that we do better. Jesus Christ deserves it. I don't know where you are in your walk. It may be that you're not a child of God. You need to come to faith in Jesus Christ, put him on in, in baptism, be clothed with him there. If you have a need that we can help through prayer publicly, we'd be happy to do that. Let us know how we can help right now as we stand.